Welcome to Health Accents, where we discuss advances and trends in medicine. The show is produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I am Dr. Nicholas Mazidis, Associate Professor of Specialty Medicine at Ohio University. I'm here today with uh, a very distinguished guest, a member of our academic community here at Ohio University. And uh, we're going to be discussing a very interesting topic, a very topic which uh, relates to all of us at some point in our lives, obviously, uh, the aging process, the aging process in humans, how it relates to some of our very important hormones. And uh, the person who's here to elucidate some of this uh, material, which is quite complex, but uh, we'll try to be simplifying things as much as possible, is uh, Dr. John Kopchik, who is a uh, Gull, Ohio Distinguished Professor of Molecular and Cellular Biology at Ohio University, and also Director of the Growth, Diabetes, and Obesity Section, the Edison Biotechnology Institute, and the Conacher Research Laboratories of Ohio University here in Athens, Ohio. Welcome, John. Thanks, Dick. Uh, so, as uh, mentioned, we have many processes that take place as we age, and obviously all of our pacemakers, all of the various mechanisms which regulate hormone production, which regulate uh, our heart rhythms, uh, pretty much every rhythm that uh, relates to function in our body begins to gradually decline, uh, sometimes in frequency, sometimes in the strength of pulse that's delivered, and uh, this slows us down. So we're all very familiar with that. However, uh, there are mechanisms there, and some of these mechanisms become operational earlier in life than we would expect or want, and that relates to illness. And uh, again, it's better to understand these things and to see what happens. One of the central players in the equation is growth hormone, which is produced uh, in the brain. Uh, and we're going to hear a little bit more about uh, this with uh, Dr. Kopchik. John, would you like to give us a little background on growth hormone and the way it uh, acts in on the body? Sure. First, The first thing is that growth hormone is not plural. You didn't say it. You said it correctly. Growth hormone is one substance, but the lay public often says growth hormones, implying that there are more than one growth hormone. True, there are more than one hormones that participate in the growth process, but what we're going to talk about today is one unique hormone, and that is growth hormone produced, as you said, in the brain by the pituitary gland. It's secreted into our circulatory system, it stays there for about 15 minutes, so its half-life, as we call it, is 15 minutes. And it does many things to many tissues in our body. As the name implies, it promotes growth. It affects bones. It's lipolytic. It degrades fat. It's anabolic. It builds muscle. So those are all, I think you would think, good things. But it does some bad things, too. One of the bad things is that is diabetogenic. It generates diabetes. So two high levels of growth hormone uh, can promote a diabetic state. Also, uh, it has been implicated indirectly in certain types of cancers. That is, growth hormone will stimulate the production of another substance called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. And that is a very potent growth a factor. That is, that'll make cells divide very, very quickly. And it, that molecule has been implicated in uh, certain types of uh, progression of cancer. 
So there are two players in this growth hormone game, if I could call it that, the growth hormone molecule itself and IGF-1. Growth hormone stimulates the production of IGF-1. As growth hormone goes up, IGF-1 goes up. As growth hormone goes down, IGF-1 goes down. So those are the players we'll talk about today. And obviously, this fits into a larger set of uh, operations and activities. And you mentioned uh, insulin, which has also a very central role. And actually, it has a pro-growth uh, role as well, since its role has to do with uh, the utilization of nutrients and putting things away and also building muscle and building fat, for that matter, and building up sugar stores. And uh, growth hormone has a little bit of an effect, as you mentioned, which is against this insulin. So they both uh, promote growth, each in their own way, and perhaps at cross-purposes, and uh, perhaps we can look into that a little bit more. Yes, exactly right. Now, uh, the activity that you mentioned with the actions of IGF-1 and growth hormone proper, uh, we have the ability now to synthesize uh, this particular product in, uh, in the lab. Uh, that has given us uh, also some freedom on the clinical side to intervene in uh, people of short stature. Uh, is that something which is uh, of help here and always advisable? Sure. It's recombinant human growth hormone, what does that mean? That's the molecule, as you said, that can be synthesized in the laboratory or now by pharmaceutical companies, several. Many actually make recombinant human growth hormone for treatment of clinically approved indications. The primary one is growth hormone deficiency in children. So it's children who are short. Uh, they go to the doctor, like you, and the doctor will diagnose that person as being either growth hormone deficient or non-growth hormone deficient. If that person is growth hormone deficient, he or she will probably be short, and in which case treatment with growth hormone injections once a day, um, it could be from four, five, six years old, all the way to uh, post-puberty, will we'll reconstitute much of the growth deficit. Approximately 95% of the market for human growth hormone is for children who are growth hormone deficient. Now, uh, is everyone able to benefit from this? Because I guess there are forms of dwarfism that might be resistant to the effects of growth hormone for another variety of reasons. Absolutely. There, in fact, there's the, the, the complement of growth hormone deficiency, which causes dwarfism in children. It's called growth hormone insensitivity. And that is those children are, are short, dwarf, and yet they have very high levels of growth hormone in their body, and yet they can't respond to it. So, so there's the, the yin and the yang, if you will, of uh, two causes of dwarfism, one, the lack of growth hormone, and the one of lack of response to growth hormone. So exactly right, that's what you said. Now, the groups now that are mentioned, because we see this resistance phenomenon, uh, in another setting, insulin resistance doesn't really confer much benefit and creates a lot of problems, although there are various ways of looking to that problem also. In this uh, setting, uh, the individuals that are resistant to growth hormone have an excess circulating, but it doesn't work. Are there any benefits to that? Well, yes, and this is a very, very exciting aspect of science in the growth hormone field that's come about in, in the last three years. Two clinicians, one Dr. Guevara in Ecuador and the second Dr. Larone in Tel Aviv, Israel, um, have been working with patients with 
growth hormone, who are growth hormone resistant. They're children, and now adults actually, uh, who do not respond to growth hormone. They're short, they're dwarf, they're actually fat, they're obese, but their fat is a healthy fat. Primarily the study of those two individuals. By the way, Lerone's syndrome is the, is the clinical term for this condition, named after Dr. Lerone from Tel Aviv. It turns out that these people live a normal age, in fact, quite old. They could be 70, 80, 90, 100 years old. But the surprising fact was that in these patients, there is no cancer and no diabetes. So the lack of growth hormone action, although, although it, that results in a dwarf phenotype, the children are dwarf and they're dwarf throughout their life, they do not get cancer or diabetes. And does that also relate to their IGF-1, so it's the whole package? Yes, IGF-1 is very low. So, so they, in those patients, they have high growth hormone. They don't respond. Therefore, IGF-1 is very, very low. And insulin, as you mentioned, is also very low in those individuals. So I guess uh, being that the growth hormone doesn't work, the insulin doesn't find a need to uh, exactly. be overproduced, doesn't find a challenge. Uh, now, uh, we also have a very interesting drug that uh, you have developed, and uh, which has brought a lot of distinction to the university uh, also, and a lot of benefit. And uh, the drug is uh, Pugvizomant. Uh, perhaps you'd like to tell us a few things about this particular drug and how it fits into this uh, little puzzle. Yeah, so we were studying, uh, this is in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, the effects of growth hormone on various activities that I mentioned, growth of bones, uh, decrease of fat, increase of muscle, and so forth. We were manipulating the molecule to see if we could retain those good effects, but we were trying to remove the insulin, uh, the diabetes-causing effect or the cancer promotion, possible cancer promotion. In doing the work on the molecule, we came up with a compound that is virtually identical to growth hormone with the exception of one unit, one amino acid. Growth hormone has 191 units, which are called amino acids. We changed one of them and created a molecule that instead of enhancing growth, it actually suppressed growth. And it turned out to be what is called a growth hormone receptor antagonist. It inhibited growth. So the first question was, is there any use for this type of inhibitor in a clinical scenario? And sure, just as there are people that have low levels of growth hormone, there are people on the other end that have high levels of growth hormone. And if left untreated, this condition is called acromegaly. And although there aren't that many patients, perhaps 20,000 in the U.S., another 20,000 in Europe, another 20,000 in Japan, it's a very devastating disease. These patients have high levels of growth hormone. So as you said, you might expect they're insulin resistant. Most are diabetic. And if left untreated, they usually die within 10 years after diagnosis. So the question was, could our compound be used to treat these individuals to inhibit this high level of growth hormone action? And lo and behold, uh, after going through a development in the clinical trials, the human clinical trials, yes, it did in fact work. And it was approved in 2003 by the uh, Food and Drug Administration. It's now marketed for individuals with acromegaly worldwide. So we're very proud of that. And it's helping many, many people worldwide. So the drug is Pigvizomant, and uh, 
at the same time that it's being used, as you mentioned, for these individuals who have an excess of growth hormone and need to be addressed, uh, obviously there were other drugs that were used uh, prior to the discovery of this particular product. Uh, and the other drugs, unfortunately, also had many side effects. So the side effect profile of your drug, uh, John, uh, is very favorable. Yeah, the um, one class of drugs of which you mentioned is called uh, somatostatin analogs. I know that's a complicated word for the audience. It basically inhibits growth hormone production by the pituitary gland. That's the good news. The bad news is about 50% of the patients do not respond, so that's the bad news. The second bad news is the side effect of this compound called octreotide. It will inhibit insulin's production from the pancreas. So many acromegalic patients with high levels of growth hormone treated with this compound called octreotide will uh, become um, more sensitive to diabetes. In fact, many of them will actually become diabetic. Our drug does the opposite. It stops growth hormone action, but it does not affect insulin secretion by the pancreas. Now, this would be uh, useful, as mentioned, in the setting of acromegaly, where we have this uh, growth hormone excess in adults. Uh, can we also find benefit uh, in other settings where we don't have acromegaly, but uh, we do want to block the effects? Well, we know that, as I mentioned, that at high growth hormone levels and therefore high IGF-1 levels have been implicated in certain types of cancer, in particular breast, prostate, and colon. We, we and others worldwide who study this molecule know that growth hormone receptor antagonist pegvisimod can inhibit the growth of certain types of breast cancer, certain types of colon cancer, and certain types of prostate cancer. So we're very excited about the possibility of using pegvisimod in a clinical scenario after clinical trials for a variety of types of cancer. So that's what's on the horizon. Looking as an adjunct to uh, other forms of uh, treatment for these cancers? Or? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, so as it turns out, what our drug does, pegvisimod, what it does, it stops the progression. It stops the growth of these types of cancers, which I mentioned. It does not, in most cases, kill the cells, but it limits their growth. So, so one would envision that one would give pegvisimod to, to halt the growth and then, then another type of chemotherapy agent to kill the cell. So you're listening to Health Accents. Our guest today is Dr. John Kopchik, and uh, the discussion centers on growth hormone, uh, the effects uh, of this hormone on a variety of functions in the human body, and also on research with uh, some newer products, more specifically Pegvisomant, which is the drug uh, which was developed, discovered and developed by Dr. Kopchik, and has much promise for individuals both uh, with overproduction of growth hormone, people known to have acromegaly. And also, from what it seems, John, we have now other indications because there is interest as everyone uh, wants to age and to age gracefully uh, and with full uh, function. Uh, there is some promise from both this and from uh, other agents, and I know that you've been to many of these conferences and, uh, of course, you have many awards uh, in the field. Can you tell us a little bit about what the interest is in that direction? Sure. Much of the, our laboratory work now evolves around the effect of growth hormone on aging. And I have to tell you, and from the beginning, we did not set out to be um, scientists studying aging. In the process of, of uh, determining the actions of our drug, Pegvisimod, 
we created a mouse that mimicked the actions of pegvisumab. We created a dwarf mouse that lacked the growth hormone receptor. It was equivalent to these dwarf children that I told you about that do not respond to growth hormone. We have a mouse like that, dwarf, fat, and lo and behold, no cancer and very low levels of diabetes, very similar to the human patients. Well, we found out by serendipitous work that these animals are living longer than normal mice. A normal mice will live two, two and a half years. These mice were living three and a half to four years. And it further turns out that it's the longest lived laboratory mouse in the world. So now we're sending these mice all over the world for scientists studying aging. And in this case, it would be the influence of growth hormone on aging. So, so the, um, what startled me is that if you remove growth hormone action in a mouse, you can actually increase health span, no cancer, no diabetes, and lifespan. And it turns out patients that have the equivalent uh, clinical situation, Lerone, dwarf individuals, live long, no cancer, and no diabetes. So the question then becomes, can you take a normal elderly individual who has now low levels of growth hormone and make it lower by use of our drug, and would that increase health span and lifespan? That's the question that gerontologists are asking. Now, you wouldn't necessarily make their growth hormone lower, but you would make it ineffectual, right, at this point? They wouldn't be working on its targets. Exactly right. So whatever would, is there would be there, but we would put in our drug that would inhibit its action. That's and right. uh, now you've created a Larone, if you will, situation in someone who is, I guess, of normal stature and everything else, but with the objective of achieving some of these benefits that we find in these uh, Larone dwarf individuals, right? So then we would expect that cancer, as you said, uh, maybe would not be as prevalent in that group. Uh, but perhaps, uh, as you suggested in the first part, if they do have cancer, that its growth would be in some way uh, influenced. Yes, exactly. Right? So that may have some benefit, right? Exactly. Uh, now, it's very interesting because uh, as uh, I was looking through some of the material that uh, you've published, some other drugs, and uh, one which uh, comes to mind being metformin, has also been uh, promoted uh, as an anti-aging uh, agent. And interestingly, now is being looked at in the cancer sphere as a drug which uh, has some benefits uh, for breast cancer, where I think also um, the discussion had come up also for pegvizumab. Now, is that uh, all coming now together? Yeah, so, so I've been to, as you mentioned, several conferences. Again, we're not gerontologists, but we're in the aging business by virtue of this long-lived mouse, this Lerone mouse, if you will. And at these uh, conferences, many gerontologists would like to treat people with current drugs that hopefully would promote health span. That's the key. So, so as a person would age, you would have less susceptibility to age-related degenerative diseases, cancer being number one. And at the end of each of these meetings, there's polls taken as to what types of drugs uh, would be potentially useful in this scenario. And rapamycin is one, but we need not go into the uh, mechanism there. Metformin, which is a drug used now for diabetes. Uh, I know you've prescribed that probably to several of your diabetic patients. And growth hormone receptor antagonist pegvisumab. So it's on the screen of gerontologists. 
That is, could one treat normal elderly individuals, elderly meaning aging, uh, 50, 60, 70 years old individuals with something, in this case, pegvisomide, and would that have beneficial effects in terms of health span and perhaps then longevity? And it's interesting because uh, I guess one of the ways in which uh, we age has to do with the heart. And again, uh, I was uh, seeing in one of your articles the discussion of this uh, term that came up as uh, somatopause. So therefore, the fact that with aging, I guess one of the things that Wendell's growth hormone uh, in the present uh, setting, uh, that relates also to the aging of the heart. And the heart, of course, is the pump. Um, how do we put that into the well, picture? Well, uh, somatopause is a term that was pirated from um, uh, the reproductive endocrinologists uh, who use the term menopause because we know what happens at menopause. Women stop producing reproductive hormones. Uh, as we age, somatopause means the, the production, the lack, the slowdown of production of growth hormone. Growth hormone in the old days was called somatotropin. So that's how this somato uh, prefix uh, came about. So somatopause means a decrease, decline of growth hormone as a function of normal aging. And sure, in terms of the effect of growth hormone on the heart, uh, growth hormone deficient individuals are known to have uh, be predisposed to heart disease. Just as on the other hand, acromegalic individuals, probably via their diabetes, uh, have problems with their left ventricle, their heart also. So too little growth hormone, can result in one cascade of heart problems. Too much growth hormone can result in another uh, uh, type of heart problem. So for any hormone, we want to keep it in a normal age-adjusted, gender-adjusted range. That's the goal of um, endocrinologists, as you well know, clinical endocrinologists. You don't want to make it too high, nor do you want to make it too low. And that's a very key point, I think, for our audience because there's this concept of balance. We need to never forget that uh, too much and too little can be equally problematic for us. Uh, however, uh, as we see here now, we have some sophisticated modalities of intervention so that uh, we don't necessarily have to give growth hormone uh, to individuals in order to promote graceful aging, healthy aging. But uh, we do have a product which uh, can interfere with the action of growth hormone that uh, may provide benefits. And I guess those benefits would be particularly valuable, perhaps, for some individuals that do have problems with that. For example, diabetes, uh, because I know that's an area of interest of yours, uh, John, looking even to those uh, individuals and saying, well, perhaps giving pegvisomant will allow us uh, to create a more favorable situation like we're using some drugs that interfere with glucagon, which is another agent that works against insulin. So this interplay, this balance that's been disturbed, we're trying to restore it. And uh, to have such very valuable tools at our disposal uh, kind of uh, gives us, I guess, in the proper hands, a lot of uh, capability and a lot of promise. But again, how do you, because we're not really using this, John, yet uh, as an agent in diabetes, do you see some form of uh, utility? Well, absolutely. We know, we know, we meaning we as a scientific community studying pegvisomont, our drug, that it is a very good insulin sensitizer. That is, if one gives pegvisomont to humans 
or animals who are diabetic, one can decrease the amount of insulin necessary to achieve normal glucose. So we're very excited about that potential, uh, absolutely. And again, another clinical trial would have to be done in diabetic individuals to show that, but uh, that would be the second big issue on the horizon. And that would be tremendous uh, because of the fact of the large numbers of patients with diabetes. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that uh, even larger amounts of insulin are being used to treat these people. And we know that uh, using large amounts of insulin in individuals who already are producing an excess of insulin and yet they still can't achieve goals is probably not the best way to approach things because we're always working under the supposition that uh, we have something which is a benefit, insulin in this particular case. Let's give more of it, you know, because we have particular goals in mind. But uh, as Dr. Kopchik was suggesting, to give something in excess, you might be also creating a problem in addition to trying to solve something else. Now, uh, a modality like Pavizomant, which uh, gives you another approach, uh, might be an elegant way to achieve targets using less insulin and creating fewer problems. So smaller amounts of uh, several drugs might be better than using a large amount of one particular agent. Is that something which we can look forward to, John? Yes, I, I think that's uh, absolutely the one of the new horizons of uh, the medical field in general. Nick, if I could say one other thing. Uh, there's a perception that growth hormone is the fountain of youth. You've seen those advertisements and so forth. Well, it's just the opposite. Removal of growth hormone action will prolong longevity. So one has to be careful of what one reads in the lay public magazines and periodicals versus the scientific facts. The second issue, there are many um, nutritive-type products that say they're growth hormone. They're not growth hormone. They're called... HGH, this, that, and the next thing. I can't reveal names here on this uh, broadcast. But growth hormone has to be injected. It's an injectable. Anything that you would buy over the counter that says it's growth hormone and orally active, it is not growth hormone. So please, people out there, save your money. You're, you're, you're wasting $50 a bottle for these substances that are not growth hormone. And might be actually detrimental to health. Exactly, exactly. Uh, on the other hand, there is, uh, for the children and for those uh, young individuals with short stature who have uh, documented uh, deficiency of growth hormone and who can benefit from it because it would work in their setting, uh, giving a daily injection, that's also a problem. And I know that, uh, John, you were recently at uh, another uh, meeting uh, where they were discussing long-acting Options right for these children. Uh, it's uh, it, it's good news and bad news. The good news is there is a drug. It's in injectable. The bad news is injectable once a day. Children, of course, don't like needles, nor do I. As a matter of fact, so the question is, could we make this growth hormone that needs to be injected once a day? Could we, as a scientific community, make it long acting so that we could inject it perhaps once a week? And there are several companies associated with universities that are now exploring these long-acting growth hormone preparations for use primarily in pediatric uh, for children, growth hormone deficient children. And that, uh, I guess, holds promise. Again, these things have to be tested, and we have to make sure that we have the appropriate levels. Um, and obviously, there are selective benefits uh, and uh, risks 
Um, there are also criteria that we use, so not every child necessarily uh, would benefit from uh, getting this type of treatment, and there are issues that have to do with uh, timing. Now, the uh, issue of antibodies, John, also comes up, right, that there are the body would produce substances that would neutralize the effect. There, there's a potential, um, although that's being coming less and less indicated, but this molecule, the human growth hormone, is identical to that coming out of the pituitary gland. So in theory, there should be no antibodies. But in actuality, in a few patients, there are antibodies, neutralizing antibodies, they're called, produced, probably because the formulation, the different formulation of the growth hormone molecule what is it mixed with when it's put in the vial before injection, and then how does it act in the body after it is injected? So, oh, yeah. so it's small, but a, a um, dis- discrete subpopulation of patients uh, will develop antibodies. And uh, your particular drug, Pegvizomant, is that something which also generates antibodies? Is that something which you encountered as an issue? That was one of our primary um, uh, tests uh, in the clinical trials, and no. So, so our molecule has a subtle change, so one may predict that that should induce antibody formation, but we also modified it to make it long-acting. We added these big carbohydrate units. They're called polyethylene glycol, pegylated. And when you do that, you make the molecule so big that the immune system can't recognize it. So we've seen no antibody uh, neutralized antibody formation. So you've encased it in a type of a protective yes, cover, exactly. which allows it to kind of evade uh, the immune system, right. so to speak. Well, this was very enlightening for our audience, John. I wanted to thank you again for sharing some time with us from your busy schedule. And uh, we look forward to hearing more as you progress with uh, your discoveries. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Health Accents here on 1340 AM. You can always listen online at woub.org. Our audio engineer is Adam Rich. I'm Dr. Nicholas Mazidis, Associate Professor of Specialty Medicine at Ohio University.